And now it's time for Coffee Talk and Confessional Christian Conversation. This is the Cafe Solar Podcast with your host, Christopher Hogan. Hi, this is Chris, and this is the Cafe Solo Podcast. And guess what? Fall is here, and that means it's time for things like pumpkin spice coffee and pretty much pumpkin everything. You'll have pumpkin pancakes. You'll have, you know, probably pumpkin eggs or something. I don't know what you'll have, but you'll have something pumpkin for the next two or three months, probably. And uh, this is my mug from Cusco. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cusco, but it's... uh, where uh, my daughter went not that long ago to climb a mountain. It's really good. So what's today's podcast about? Today's podcast is uh, a bonus episode. It's a hymn study episode recorded at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Bible study was led by Pastor Chris Hall, and the Bible study is on the hymn number 562, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall happens to be one of the only hymns, if not the only hymn, that is actually quoted twice in the Book of Concord. Twice. I hope you enjoy. It was a really good class. Thanks and God's blessing. All right, let's go. Uh, Today we're going to do hymn 562, so let's pray. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Merciful Father, we thank you for bringing us safely to this day. We ask for the presence and blessing of the Holy Spirit. We meditate upon your word that it may assure us of our salvation. It comes only in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. I have the Luther Rose on here because it's an interesting thing I read this week. The hymn we're studying today is hymn 562, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall, written by Lazarus Spang- Spangler. Spangler? S-P-E-N-G-L-E-R? Spangler? I don't know how to say his name. Uh, but he's dead, so it doesn't really matter if I can pronounce it right. Lazarus was one of the first big supporters of the Reformation. In his area, he was elected to go to the Diet of Farms, right? That was where Luther was uh, tried uh, by Charles V, you know? So he was elected to go there, and he was uh, from Nuremberg, quickly became a big proponent of Reformation theology, big supporter of Luther. And in fact, and I was reading this, it was interesting, he is the guy who helped design Luther's robes. Which I, I, you always think of Luther just coming up with it, kind of. This is Luther's rose, you know. But really, the guy we have to thank for it as well is Lazarus here. He gave the idea, the, the imagery, right? You have the black cross symbolizing Christ dying, taking on our sin. How did he atone for it all? Right? The heart is red by his blood. You have the green in there symbolizing life and, and growth in God. You have the blue symbolizing hope and eternity is symbolized in the golden ring around it. So it's beautiful stuff. Um, I love Luther's uh, rose. It's a beautiful symbol uh, that we have. Um, It's a beautiful thing. The hymn we're singing today, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall, is the only hymn quoted in the Book of Concord. It's quoted twice in our confessions, both times in the formula of Concord. Uh, once to condemn a false understanding of original sin, and one time uh, supporting a, a biblical understanding of the bound will. So it's a beautiful hymn. Um, here. You okay, Ken? Okay, there should be some height. I don't know. Maybe there. If not, we can create some for you. Just go grab Lonnie or something. 
I love it. All right, well, let's do this. I like singing, then we'll talk, singing, then we'll talk. So let's sing uh, stanza one, which is on the second page there, uh, printed out for you. And thank you to Miss Linnea for printing that out for us. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. From one to all the curse descends. And over all God's wrath impends. So let's go to Genesis 3, 1 through 9. We're going to kind of... You never skim scripture, but basically going to skim it. Because <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's more. Usually I've covered four stanza hymns, and this is a, a six stanza hymn. So we have a little more uh, to cover in the time allotted to us. Now we have in right, you have in Genesis 3 is the account of the fall. And when we look at it, what we're going to do is read basically verses 1 through. Um, 13 actually now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made isn't it interesting how we passed over that very quickly the serpent is made by God because what do we usually do when it comes to sin and things like that is we go to what Pastor Daniels condemned last week Manichaeanism a dualism, like there's a good God and a bad God. Good God is God, bad God is the devil. But here we have the serpent is created by God. He's crafty. How do you understand the word crafty? What does that mean? Sneaky, right? So that makes no sense. Why would God make something that's sneaky? You know? Um, the way God works is different than how we work. To make alive, he kills. To bring up to heaven, he brings down to hell. To exalt, he humiliates. You right there, Lonnie? All right, buddy. <laughs> he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Uh-oh. Neither shall you touch it. Has Eve done something here? Well, the woman, her name's not Eve yet like Prince, right? She was known as woman, then Eve, so it's like Prince. Did he go ever go back to Prince? He was Prince, then the artist, he never went back to Prince? That's sad. He, think he, would have. he became just a symbol. Yeah, I know he's the symbol. He was the artist formerly known as Prince, so I was like, ah, man. Oh, let me get that out of the way for you. There we go. Wunderbar. So, that's sad. I thought he went back to Prince before he died, but uh, say um, so, so the woman adds to God's word, right? All he talked about was, was eating it. He doesn't talk about touching it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, do you see the progress here? It's desire to you look and see it, and then it's something that's good for you, at least you think. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So looking just at that real quick, what, what is the sin of the woman and Adam? What is the sin? Is it eating the fruit? What's the sin? 
Desiring the prayer. Desiring it. It's not believing God's word. It's twisting God's word. It's taking uh, God's word and not holding to it, right? Jesus does in Matthew 4. He holds to God's word perfectly. Here, Adam, because Adam's right there. So he, that's why he's brought up in Romans 5. Not the woman, but Adam. Because could Adam have put a stop to all this? No. He could have. He, he didn't try at least. No, he was married. <laughs> he was married. I tell you. He should have, but he didn't. Adam sat on the side and let the woman, let the serpent preach to her the gospel of whatever makes you happy, basically. Whatever your desire is, fulfill it. And she listened. Adam listened in his silence. And then because of this sin, the fruit of that sin, doubt and not trusting in God's word, was the action of taking the fruit. Because usually we take the sin is taking the fruit itself and eating. Because then it's just actions that are bad. Because you've heard it's like, oh, you know, you can think it, but just don't do it, right? What does Jesus say about that, though? Even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery. adultery. You know, don't hate your brother. Don't have anger towards your brother. I mean, that, that's the kicker. Don't have anger towards your brother. Um, I love having four boys. It trains me into being a better pastor. Because I have to deal with people doing dumb things every day and hitting each other. I love it because sometimes my son will say to his other brothers, I hate you, I don't want you around, so what I'll do is I'll take him and I'll drive him about a half mile away and dump him somewhere and drive away. <laughs> Hide, and then come back and get him a minute later and go, are we done? And go, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say I hate my family. I'm like, you shouldn't, you buffoon. Get back in the, I don't, do, I don't drive him a half mile away. Um, you know, what's wrong with that? Someone takes him, it's fine by me, they'll bring him back, trust me. But the reality is, like, if you want to say you hate your family, it's just the same as wishing your family dead. You know? I mean, the reality is, you don't get... But why do I... How can I do that to my sons? It's because they're completely reliant on me for life. Y'all aren't, right? In fact, it's the other way around. I depend on y'all, right? For a paycheck and stuff, you know? So it's difficult. But the reality is, when we look at... Having anger and hatred toward each other, it's counterproductive. Desire is just the same as action. Hating someone is just the same as killing. There's no difference. There's no distinction. Chris? I was just, we always talk, focus on the, the eating of the fruit or the temptation to eat the fruit. What about Adam not doing what he was called to do? Yeah. Is that, I, is that the original? I preached on the, that a couple years ago when I say one of the chief sins is Adam not preaching to his wife. Not stopping the voice of the serpent and letting her listen. I think it was for Lent 1 I preached on that, taking Matthew 4, that Christ does speak. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't Lent 1, it was Good Friday. That on the cross, Christ, Christ preached. So that the voices heard weren't just the Jews, but his voice. Right? Nice. So Christ overcomes where Adam failed. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah. So the curse that descends to all men is unbelief, <laughs> is doubt, not trusting in God's word. That is the curse. And then what is the fruit of that curse is death. Death comes to all now because all men are born and conceived in this unbelief, in this inherited sin. And we're going to keep talking about what does that sin look like as we keep going through. Because the beautiful part about this hymn, and I don't know, do you have it in your hand down? Where, yeah, what does it say at the top of the hymn? What section of the hymnal is this in? 
justification, right? So this is on how we are justified, how we are righteous before our Father in heaven. So in and of ourselves, we are sinful, doubt-ridden, unbelieving. We have nothing good in us. Let's go to stanza two. <clears throat> Through all our past corruption creeps and us in dreadful bondage keeps in guilt we bedtime stuff. Augsburg Confession, which is right, written in 1530, was confessed June 25th, 1530 at the Diet of Augsburg before Charles V. Luther did not author the Augsburg Confession. It was authored by a guy named Philip Melanchthon. But in Melanchthon's theology, you see a lot of Luther's theology coming forth through it. Luther could not be at Augsburg because if he had gone, they would have just chopped his head off. Instead, he sat at the Coburg Castle and uh, that's where he was during the diet and everything. So uh, he has a lot of good writings while he's at the Coburg because he had been married five years up to that point, had a child, children? I think maybe two by then. But he was lonely because he couldn't be with his brothers, nor could he be with his wife and children. So just a lonely guy. Who wants to read uh, Article 2, or part of Article 2 at least, of the Augsburg Confession? I'll read it. The Augsburg Confession asserts the doctrine of original sin, of inherited sin, saying, Our churches also teach that since the fall of Adam, all men who are propagated, I could say that word, who are propagated, to, propagated. to nature are born in sin. That is to say, they are without fear of God, are without trusting God, and are concupiscent. And this disease or vice of, ori of origin is truly sin which even now damns and brings eternal death to, on those who are not born again through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Where's my daughter? <laughs> oh, okay, that's right. I'm like, man, if she was raptured, I knew it was gonna be her. I was just shocked if she was raptured. I see Miss Emily sitting there still. I'm like, wait a minute, rapture didn't happen. Um, no, I know I'll be left behind. Me and Kirk Cameron, we're gonna hang out. I think I would annoy the tar to Kirk. What was the show he was in? Was it Growing Pains? And then I would talk about Growing Pains like every day. Be like, were you jealous when Leo came on the show? Stuff like that, you know? <laughs> Sorry, that's my usual. Leo or Kirk Cameron? Kirk Cameron's your favorite? I'm sorry, he's never, I, I'm shocked he didn't get an Oscar for the Left Behind movies, Jeannie. It's sad, it's a sad thing. <laughs> so what does the, this doctrine of inherited sin, Luther liked calling it inherited sin, because original is still right, it's not wrong, but it makes it out like, okay, it was a one-time thing, whereas this one, yes, the sin of Adam, like in Romans 5, it says, even if it's not the same exact type, we inherit this sin. Luther talks that way in the small called articles. How does this doctrine of inherited sin teach us about justification at least our role in justification do we have one no no we don't have a role at all we have nothing to do with making ourselves righteous now we usually say this and we say yeah we believe this we're lutheran but do we act with other people like this do we treat them like they have to do nothing in order to be justified no no, we, we make it out like it's good for us. I don't have to justify myself, but you, you're going to have to try a little harder. 
And usually we get to that point when we get upset with someone, when we get mad with someone, right? Um, it's interesting, like, it, like take inviting someone to church. You know, if you invite someone to church, let's say it's your next door neighbor or family member, how many times do you do before you finally just kind of <coughs> stop? Three. Three, three, seven <laughs> times, 70, you know? No, but why do you stop? It's because you eventually just go, they're not going to come anywhere. They're not going to come anywhere, then I'm not going to try. Something like that. Yeah. Or you just don't want to get mad, or you are getting mad, so you stop. I mean, the reality is, we are justified, declared righteous, solely by Christ's grace. It's nothing we do. How does that then change how we live with our neighbor? If we don't do anything in matters of our justification, how should we forgive our neighbor? As we are forgiven. As we are forgiven. <laughs> unconditionally, while they're still being sinners, while they're still being enemies, we forgive them. I'll forgive you if. Yeah, we like that word if. It's those little words that cause the most trouble. But the reality is, we do nothing for our salvation. Mankind does nothing for his salvation. It's passive. It's nothing we do. So let's continue this thought by singing verse 3. The first three verses... It's not that they're redundant, but what they are is they're kind of just digging deeper every single verse into the condition of man. You know, it's starting here and continuously growing. Are we, gonna, are we okay back? Okay, we're okay. Where, where are we? Which verse? From hearts depraved to evil prone, flow thoughts and deeds of sin John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus' uh, dialogue. And who is he talking with in John 8? Is he talking with the Pharisees who hate his guts? He's talking with those Jews who believed in him. That's who he's talking to in this. So he's not talking to these enemies who despise him. He's talking to people who believe he's the Messiah. But maybe not fully understand what that means that he's inside. Who's got John 8? Oh, go ahead. So Jesus talks about he who commits sin is a slave to sin. So how are we outside of Christ? Are we forced to sin or do we delight in it outside of Christ? We delight in it. We delight in it. No one forces us to do something sinful. No one forces us um, to lose our temper. No one forces us to lust. No one forces us um, to love the things of this world more than we love the things of God. No one forces us to desire sleep more than labor. We aren't forced to do things. We delight in these things. Right? That's that concupiscence that was talked about again. So this is, this is who we are. Does that, that nature ever go away? Like in our no. baptism, is that nature just kind of thrown in the basket and it's gone? Never to come back again? It goes away eventually. Hey, it goes away in death, right? Fully death. <laughs> sin no longer is a problem for us in death. But in this life? No. But death happens on, in baptism. 
Death happens in holy absolution. Death happens in the divine service. This is where death takes place, the death of the old Adam and the rejuvenation, the birth of the new man in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. We are no longer held accountable because of our sins. Christ, right, says in Colossians 2, ah, 13 through 14, that uh, he has taken them and uh, our sins and nailed them to the cross, to the tree. That's where our sins are. They condemn us no more. We're forgiven. And we die with Christ. We live with Christ in this new sanctified life. Yet, we're also still dragging around this corpse of sin and desire with us. We struggle, right? It even happens in the divine service. You desire to listen to the sermon, but what happens after the first couple minutes of the sermon? You tune out. You tune out. <laughs> exactly. Your, I do too. Your kids. Decide. That's why halfway through my sermon, I have to have someone help me out where I am because I tune out even when I'm preaching. I mean, we do this. We tune out during Bible study, right? What? You look at the cell phone. You look at it, it's nice that there's no clock up here, right? You know, something like that. Oh, Tay's like, I got my clock right. I had this woman named Wilma Knitter in Illinois. She was a fun gal. But I remember she'd sit in the second pew. And if my sermon went anywhere over 12 minutes, she would go like this. She'd go, oh. And just look at me in the eye. And that was a fun time. We would always challenge, how long could I stare just at Wilma after she stared at her watch? Great gal. I, agree. I tell you, I don't time mine either. Praise the Lord for that. But man, she, she's with the Lord now. She died of, uh, like Alzheimer's finally, just, her, you know, they took the body and everything. But uh, she, she was a fun one. She knew a bunch of words, too. So it was always fun uh, going to visit <laughs> with her. She was one. But that's the thing is outside of Christ, we delight in sin. We take joy in it. No one makes us do it. We just desire to do it. So these first three verses are basically someone taking a hammer over our head going, you can't do it. It's not for you to do. You are, you have inherited sin. We have actual sins. We take delight in sin. It's not us that do the work. We don't do it. That's the law of preaching. You can't do it. Well, what about decisions? Decision. decision theology. Well, decision theology is a fun thing, right? It's safe. It's easy. Theology, when you talk theology, you should sound stupid and feel stupid. Because you're talking about eternal things, things of heaven. If you sound like you've got it all together, and everyone goes, that makes perfect, absolute sense. It's not actual theology. <laughs> you know? Some decide, some say, no, well, that makes sense. Kind of like an election. You know? No, it never speaks that way in Scripture. It makes sense because then it saves you. And it gives you an excuse to not like that person over there that said no to Jesus. Who wants to keep drinking bourbon, smoking doobies, chasing loose women. Those were always the big three in the, you know, conversion stories. I always like when the guy would say smoking doobies. I'm like, man, you were a renegade. Let me tell you. All right, let's go to verse 4. Now we get to some gospel stuff. That's better. <clears throat> so we have this condition of who we are. Someone say something? Okay, I thought someone did. We have this condition of who we are in sin, no hope, no power, no ability except to sin. Then we get to verse 4. 
Digested are a part of us. Let's go to Isaiah 53 4 to 10. The suffering servants. Right? When do we usually read these parts of the text, Isaiah? When do we read these? Lent, right? And the big one, Good Friday. That's when the big day comes up. That would actually be a fun Lenten series this year, is walking through the passion narrative of Isaiah. Wouldn't that be fun? On midweeks, that'd be a fun time. Maybe we'll do that this year. Walking through 53, 54, and all that. All right. I think last year we had it as our Old Testament reading, but it was never the the perp like the text meditated on. Who's got this? Isaiah 53. I do. All right, let's go ahead. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has, he has oppressed, oh he was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made, it, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I love this passage. Um, I mentioned on uh, last week, uh, I'm leaving tomorrow for my doctoral work up in Fort Wayne, and um, one of the things I had to do was review a theologian named Gerhard Ferdy, ELCA theologian, and I had to read his doctrine. I've read it before a long time ago, um, and I forgot some of it, on the doctrine of the atonement and on justification. Now, one thing Ferdy rejects is what we just read, substitutionary atonement, that Jesus in our stead suffered the full wrath of the Father for us. Ferdy rejects this notion. He says, instead, the Son of God died because man rejects God. That's why he inevitably died. It was kind of like a happy, not a happy, but an accident. 
It's kind of like there's a little girl playing in the street and a truck driver's coming who doesn't see the girl and a man steps in front of the truck to stop the girl from dying. The man dies, the girl lives, the truck driver feels bad. Now in our thing, the truck driver's God, the father killing the son so that we may be saved. But in Ferdy's thing, we're not the little girl playing in the street. Who are we? We're the truck driver and his theology. His theology isn't biblical. As we read through Isaiah 53, all you can hear is the sins of the world being laid on Jesus. And what does it say? Who brought him to an end? God did. If God the Father did not want his son to die, it would not have happened. But it did happen. Because God the Father willed it. So on the cross, what is taking place, what's happening to Jesus, is all of the sin and sinners of the world are laid upon Christ. He becomes the sinner of the world. Even though he's perfect, sinless, and pure, on the cross he takes every single sin. Right? And, and this means every single sin. Has anyone ever heard the quote from that is most quoted on Luther, sin boldly. Anyone ever heard this one? There's even mugs made about it, right? Beer steins, like a huge beer stein, sin boldly, drink boldly, stuff like that, you know? <laughs> and it's like this thing of, okay, we're sinners, we might as well sin and do it. Well, the context of this statement from Luther is his friend Philip Melanchthon, who's sitting there kind of, not justifying his sin, but trying to say, well, here's a real serious one, and this one I don't really know if it is. Is it sin? Is it not sin? This kind of, because have you ever done that? Is this wrong? Is it not wrong? And Luther comes in, right? Everyone would say Melanchthon used a scalpel to write. Luther used a hammer, you know? He just came in and blasted the place. And he says, sin boldly. It's sin. Sin is sin is sin. Don't try to make excuses for it. Don't try to... Uh, figure out what is and what isn't. The reality is outside of faith, everything is sinful. Exactly. Lisa makes the point, the focus is on the second half, that in this, because when we wonder if something's sinful or not, what we're really questioning is God's grace. We're questioning, will God forgive this? Can he forgive this? And the answer to that is, yes. <laughs> Can God forgive the woman who's had an abortion? Yes. Can God forgive the man who has sat by silently while the woman walked into the abortion clinic? Or who actively forced her in there? Yes, which is majority of abortions, by the way. It's not a woman's choice, but it's a man forcing it. Right? So that's the reality. Does God forgive? Yes. Does God forgive someone who trusts in other idols more than they do in Christ? Right? What are we going to do next year if Trump loses to the liberal? Pray. <laughs> Say, fun times. We get another prince who could fail us. Right? I love being a Lutheran pastor when we have a liberal president. I love it. It's the best time in the world. I hate having conservative presidents. I remember when Obama was our president, my first couple years here, we prayed for him, and one of our members walked out and said, can you stop doing that? I said, what, praying for Obama? I said, no, he's our president. Terribly sorry. That's who he is, the office of the president. Why would you stop praying for 
because he's a bad guy. Yeah, exactly. The point I'm making is I don't trust in anybody except in Christ. In God, you're right, in God. I love Governor Abbott, but he is just an instrument of God. Every single politician is. Right? What about a football? I just talked to the kids. We'll sit through a three-hour Astros game. Does God forgive Astros fans? <laughs> sure. Maybe. <laughs> Does he forgive Yankees fans? No. No. <laughs> The reality is, you know, is, is on the cross, even God, Jesus looked at George Steinbrenner and said, I can't do it. I can't take it on me. It's too much. No. On the cross, Jesus assumes every sin. That means there isn't, I've said it a ton of times, and I know I, I, know I sound redundant a lot of times in my preaching, but that's because I, I'm lazy. Um <laughs> There isn't one sin that Jesus didn't die for on the cross for you. There isn't one sin that he didn't make satisfaction for on the cross for you. You can't, you're not going to surprise Jesus with a sin all of a sudden. Well, what about the unpardonable sin? The rejecting Christ? Who did that right after his resurrection? Thomas, right? Thomas did. That's the law of preaching. If we die, like a few months ago, remember I said, if, if you're caught in the act of gossiping and die, you go to hell. I mean, it's a bold statement, but the reality is we either die to our sin or in our sin, one or the other. Sin is sin. Unbelief is the same sin as, well, which is worse, someone um, skipping church or someone not believing? Not believing. Same thing, exactly. It's the same thing. Why? Because sin is sin. sin. And on the cross, Christ became all, but he became Thomas the doubter. He became Peter the denier. He became Judas the betrayer. He became David the adulterer. He became Cain the murderer. He became Adam the silent on the cross. So that on the cross, he could make satisfaction for our sins by paying the debt that we owe. So that the Father may continue to be a God of mercy. Because God did not demand something from us. Right? It says, Sacrifices I do not delight in, but a broken and contrite, contrite heart, O God, thou shalt not despise. How are we saved? Because Christ assumed everything that condemns us and put it to death at Calvary. Everything is done for on the cross. Let's sing stanza five. <clears throat> As by one man, all man Romans 5, 12 through 21. I can't wait. to Actually, I already started watching Christmas movies. <laughs> Once it came on Hallmark, I got so giddy. It's like, it's here, Christmas time. July? That was I in know, July. But I skip Halloween. I go straight to Christmas. Right after the 4th of July, July 5th, Christmas season starts for me. Actually, it's all year round. If you, if you find me writing or something, you'll find me listening to Christmas music. I know it annoys every single other person, but... It calms me. Romans 5, 12 through 21. 
is basically what our last verse we just sang is summarizing what takes place in these verses. And this is really the main passage that this hymn is based on. It's Romans 5. I have it. Hannah, go ahead, my lady. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not found where there, was, where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died for one man to trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following one trespass was brought justification. For if because of the man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life than one man to free Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led a condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign in righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this, thank you, this gets back to what Lisa mentioned earlier. We don't focus on the sin boldly part, we focus on the grace part. With this, the point St. Paul is making is that though great is the transgression of Adam, right? Greater still is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. I love it where it says, where there is no law, right? It says this in verse 13, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Where is there no law? In Christ. In Christ, in Christ he is the telos nomos, the end of the law. In Christ, he assumes all of the law's accusations against you. Right on the cross, the law found him to be the sinner. So in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. In Christ, there is no judgment because he receives all of the judgment. In Christ, you are perfect and holy. There is no death for you now. We've already had the big death. When did the big death take place for us? The real death. Baptism. Baptism. Soon we will have a little death, as Luther used to put it. A little death. When we finally breathe our last here on earth. A little death. The big one's taking place. The little one will happen later. Right? It's beautiful. It's kind of like this. Has anyone ever actually read the Lord of the Rings books? The books, not just the movie? I love in Return of the King, the third, third one. It has, you know, these big battles, you know? Big battles where, I hope I'm not ruining this for anybody. <laughs> if you haven't, you've had like 90-something years to, to read it. Um, huh? Well, Tolkien's that old, so I'm going that old. You know? Wouldn't that have been cool to sit with Tolkien and Lewis, sipping yeah. whiskey and smoking and talking? And, like hearing the first reading of The Hobbit, that would have been pretty cool. But that's, that's my geeky moment, I'm sorry. But the thing is, there's this big, this big battle over, and the ring is destroyed. And, and, and the, the, the Aragorn and Gondor, all these fun names, all these people are victorious. But then there's a battle that comes after. What happens after that? Does anyone remember? 
They return home, but what happens at the Shire when they get back? What do they have to do? Who's there? Saruman is there, right? Yeah, but he gets like because he's defeated, a big defeat. He goes and takes takes over the Shire, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful imagery. And what we get is even though Saruman's back in the Shire, it's this little battle that's fought. And I hate that it doesn't take place in the movie. But why doesn't? It's because we care about the big battle. The big extravagant, all the swords and the spears and the arrows and the horses and the all this stuff. That's the cinema stuff. The little battle. Yeah. And it's, that's the only problem when you're really geeky and read the books, then you watch the movie and you get mad half the time, you know? But the reality is, this is that's the little death, is getting back in the shower. The big death's already taken place, so now the little death is nothing. The little death can be dealt with, because the big death has happened. You know? The big death of condemnation is done for in baptism in Christ. We are bound for heaven. So when we die, that's where we're going. It's a little thing. Why do people find this if this little death part is like how we are living our lives now, mm -hmm. right? So, and we sin, but people get into such despair when they sin. It's as if they don't trust the big death. Well, and that's exactly, they don't trust the big death. They don't trust Jesus' death. They don't trust in their baptism. I mean, that's the reality is trusting in, in our baptism is something we need every single day is a reminder of it. Um, the boys, all of their baptismal certificates are on the stairs as they come down the stairs in the morning. So they see, yes, that's when I was baptized. Maybe we should put it on our beds. Like, right, that's the first thing you see in the morning. Hey, I'm baptized. That's awesome. Jesus loves me. Luther says something similar in the catechism, right? Wake up and make the sign of the cross. To remind yourself of who you are in Christ and trust in the big death so that the little one will not bother you. So then you're free to love your neighbor. Because some people will say, well, this frees you to do whatever you want. No, it doesn't. Right? You know? Because Paul knew it. So that's what people would do, right? Yeah. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How will we who died to sin still live. live in it? You know? Luther was asked the same question. What do we do with people that abuse it? He goes, I don't know. But it doesn't change the fact. Abuse will happen of any good thing. Do people abuse the freedom they have in this country? Yes. Does that mean we should eliminate the freedom? No. People abuse the gospel, the forgiveness of their sins. Does that mean we should get rid of the gospel? No. It means people will abuse it. What do we do? We pray. Like we pray in our, our prayers that all who err may be brought back. It's a fun time. Let's sing. What time is it? What time do we have? Two minutes, one, one, how many is it? Two or one, Debbie Dice? Three. three. Is it three minutes? Okay, let's go. Let's sing verse six. <clears throat> we thank you, Christ, new life is ours. New life, new hope, new strength, new powers. This grace are every way attend until we reach our journey. Oh, it's beautiful stuff.
This is our hymn of the month this month. It is going to be the hymn of the month, right? For, for this month of October. A beautiful Reformation hymn. This is mine. I tell you, I'm going to think of you every time, Debbie Tice. Those rhythms, I love them. Oh, man. When you do run me over, Debbie, just make sure you hit parts that are cushioned. Cushiony parts, please. Be gentle. Be gentle. What does the baptismal life look like? What does it mean that the grace of Christ attends our every way until our death? It is the reality that none of us desire to sin. None of us want to sin. None of us want to lose our cool. None of us want to live an evil life. But do we? Yes. Yeah. And the grace of Christ attends us through our whole life. Saying, the devil's word is not more powerful than my word. Your conscience will bring you to despair. But I have claimed your conscience, your body and soul, eyes, ears, everything in holy baptism. You are mine, says Jesus. His grace attends us from font to grave. The reality that Christ is there with us. Being merciful to us. I thought of it the other day. I was taking my trash out. And I remember, um, I, I recall one of my former members actually died taking the trash out. He went out, said something to his wife, walked out to take the trash out. Took him like 45 minutes. She went out, the guy had died of a heart attack taking the trash out. Happens, right? Well, you think every heartbeat, every breath we have, every step we take, every move we make. I'm kidding, that's, that's not scripture. But the reality is... Everything we do is under God's mercy, His grace, Him attending to us. When we look at our entire life, our first article gives, second article gives, third article gives. The baptismal life is a life of being showered with the grace and mercy of Jesus. That's what our life is. That's what frees us to love our neighbor. That's what frees us to be joyful, to be happy, to rejoice. In every single situation. Why? St. Paul says that in all things I am content. In all things I rejoice, either good or bad. So my friends, may, may this hymn be a blessing to you as you sing it this month. And as you meditate on it. Uh, I don't have many hymns to critique. Because if you notice in the justification section, almost every hymn is a really good hymn. I'm sure I can find it. I'm sure Pastor Daniels would be able with his fine comb... And it's not just a comment on his thinning hairline. Be able to find a bad hymn in the justification section. What I was going to say is why you can't. <laughs> is because justification is, is, is the doctrine upon which the church stands and falls. If it's a bad hymn on justification, it's just a bad hymn. There's, you're not going to find an incomplete one on justification. It has to be full. We do nothing. Christ does everything. So that we may be righteous with our Heavenly Father. Praise the Lord for that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord up His countenance upon you. Grant you peace. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good one.